Welcome back to Mechanical Freak. Uh, we are here with a very special guest today, Vincent Bevins. Vincent is an award-winning journalist reporting for the Financial Times, serving as the Brazil correspondent for the LA Times, and covering Southeast Asia in the Washington Post. He is the author of such books as The Jakarta Method, which is frequently referenced on Ending the Myth, and his latest book, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. Vincent Bevins, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, no, I mean, we really, really enjoyed this book, and it's um, so exciting that you're on the pod to talk about this. Um, well, this especially is... after uh, Jakarta Method, you know, because uh, as a music fan, Vincent, you understand that the first album, you know, it's always great because you had so many years to put it together, right? Right. And it's the second <laughs> album is the real test of the band's metal, you know? And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I got to say, another banger out the gate. This is this book is fantastic. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, I guess they're always like the, the the fear of the sophomore slump right although i yeah. guess like <laughs> it is a bit a little bit easier in this game the game of books to <laughs> play the long game than it is in music because i know musicians and like you know by the time you hit you know the age that i'm coming to you're either like a legend or you have a hard time reinventing yourself but you know as an author you can kind of like keep going into your 50s 60s 70s of course like the, yeah. the most beloved musicians do that too but with, with books you're given a little bit more leeway to maybe screw up on your second and third book and do the fourth one. Yeah. Note to listeners, uh, uh, Mr. Bevins here is currently turning 27. That's that's what he's referencing. No, <laughs> <Yeah>. no. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. This is it. I'm done. <laughs> God, hang, up the, hang up the saddle. <laughs> well, Vincent, um, we're really, really excited to talk about this. And, you know, this is talking about a real topical uh, moment where, you know, this is about the... Uh, 2010s in the mass protest decade of the 2010s. And um, I think, honestly, when we were reading this book, uh, you summed this phenomenon up beautifully in these like five step process of how these protests usually go down. So step one, protesting crackdowns lead to favorable media coverage. Step two, media coverage leads to more people to the protest. Step three, repeat. Almost everyone is protesting. Step four, question mark. Step five, <laughs> a better society. Right. Uh, Vincent, how do we get to this point? Yeah, it's a um, it's a that's the question that I try to attack, I guess, uh, because while the particular type of mass protest that I analyze in this book or that I choose to build a global history around has a set of really serious um, has really serious intellectual history behind it. Like every single piece of the mass protest recipe, every single ingredient came together through like well thought out, um, serious analysis of, you know, social movement strategy and, and history. Um, it, that package that was put together, I think in the second half of the 20th century in the early 21st century ended up being so successful that it kind of took on its own logic that you got quite a lot of people joining, um, this type of mass protest movement, way more people than were expected to join the mass protest movements that, uh, by the original sort of creators of the recipe. And a lot of these new people just got in this permanent feedback loop with media and the idea of raising awareness. Like, okay, well, we raise more awareness, which gets more people and then more and like, you know, maximum awareness equals for some reason um, progress. And like, I think this kind of 
thinking is especially easy in like the United States where like progress has tended to have happen. There have tended to be governments and, and, and structures that are that respond to people that that represent the people in some sense or another. But I think that's less true than it used to be. And certainly when when you get past a certain point, when you get really to like the really big questions of the global system, there's no referee to just be like, oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, these people have proven that they care about this thing and they're right. And so therefore it will be fixed automatically. Um, so what I try to do in this book is to build a history of the 2010s, like a truly global history around one strange phenomenon and one kind of mysterious question. And the strange phenomenon is mass protests that get so big that they actually overthrow or fundamentally destabilize existing governments, which is not some, which is not the the pattern that we were used to in the 20th century, or even like the Iraq war protests that I participated in in 2003, we were used to protests either being ignored or responded to. Um, so this 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 is a strange thing, this apparent success, this um, successful invitation to so many people onto the streets that actually elites are dislodged or destabilized. And then the mysterious question is, how is it that after this initial apparent success, so many mass protests ended up leading to the opposite of what they asked for? How was that possible? And so I, I just I tried to build a, a, a history around that question um, rather than trying to come up with exactly a program or or speak to what should be done right now, for, especially not in the United States. So it's really a history of the world built around built around that that phenomenon and that question. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of interesting because, you know, in your book, uh, you look at 10 different countries kind of at a, at a deeper level, right? You know, Brazil, Chile, Turkey, you know, Tunisia, Egypt, Indonesia, right? Uh, Hong mm-hmm. Kong, Ukraine, right? You, know, you do a bunch of interviews with people. I think it, you mentioned 250 interviews of people in those countries, like involved in those right. protest movements. And I guess it's interesting because, you know, you're from Los Angeles, right? Right. Uh, you know that the dictum in America is there's nothing outside of America. Right, um, right, right. So I guess I guess the question is, like, what, what led you to kind of choose this unique starting point of uh, I'm going to write a book about mass protests around the world and uh, America actually isn't going to be the main character. <laughs> what what kind yeah. of led you to that, that point? <laughs> yeah, I've actually seen some people react like, I mean, by now, maybe people have figured it out. But when it first came out, I did see some reactions of people realizing that. Wait, oh, actually, it isn't about America, which was like (laughs) some people responded by like with disbelief, like, come on, why not? Or other people just responded by finding ways to believe that it's secretly about America, like that, like the the entire project of spending four years and doing 250 interviews was a way to send like a cryptic message about my position on some intra-left battle in the United States that I've never even heard of. Because <laughs> um, I did spend 95% of my time just trying to get the history right. I tried to is, interview as much people. I tried to be, I tried to honor the time of the people that that that, that, that shared their experiences with me. And then I spent eight months doing um, peer review and then fact checking, just trying to to get the history right. And why is the United States not in the story other than as we'll probably end up talking about, um, except for the ways that like ideas of protest move back and forth mm-hmm. between um, different countries around the world and ideas developed in the United States or certainly social, uh, technology firms in, in the United States end up shaping reality, um, is that I, I picked that one criterion for inclusion in the book is that mass protests got so big that they fundamentally destabilized over through governments. Now, why did I choose that one? Because I could have chose anything, right? Like I, I made up the criterion myself. Um, it all goes back to my experiences in Brazil in June 2013 when 
a protest that was put together by people that wanted things that I think are unambiguously progressive. There were people that were on the left and on the anti-authoritarian um, uh, end of politics ended up triggering a mass protest that did fundamentally destabilize the government. Um, and But their theory of what a popular mass revolt would mean turned out to be horrifyingly wrong. Um, and it, for whatever reason, we could talk about those reasons. Um, none of the none of the cases in the 2010s in which there was that that level of explosion, there was no the intensity of explosion that caused fundamental destabilization in anywhere in the uh, traditional first world. Yeah, I also yeah. don't know anything about the United States. Like my entire career. <laughs> All right, honestly, congratulations. Yeah, I haven't <laughs> lived, I haven't lived in the United much. States since 2006. <laughs> Uh, I have, you know, of course I follow the, the news. I work for us media, but I haven't been closely on the ground paying attention to anything in the United mm -hmm. States since 2006. So, you know, I figure to, it's best to number one, I read about what I know. And number two, I thought that this phenomenon really, you know, really did take place in these 10 to 13 countries, depending on how you, how you count them. And some things, some things in, in the U S matter a little bit, Occupy Wall Street matters little, the sixties in the U S matter a little, but it's not really, it's ultimately not about the U S. Well, yeah. So you mentioned that, you know, you don't live in the U.S. anymore. You now live in Brazil. You live in Sao Paulo. Um, and, um, you know, Brazil's story was like very fascinating to read for me. And, and it seemed like the general through line of uh, this book that was kind of tying a lot of things together. So it seemed like Brazil was like a through line in the book. Like what inspired you to highlight uh, Brazil specifically in this book? Well, to, to, to make the book into a single history, like a single story. I thought that there should be one narrative, one, one, one thread that goes from the beginning all the way to the end. Uh, and Brazil seemed to work um, for both of those purposes, uh, or, or Brazil seemed to work for that purpose for two reasons. One, I perceived events directly. I, I was able to do a much better job on that national case than any other, of course, because of my experience. And number two, like it does unfold slowly. Like it does take like from 2013 ultimately to 2019 for, for all of the dust to settle and for the pieces to fall. So I chose it for those two reasons. And then also including myself in the book, which was a decision I made, even though I'm quite reticent to ever talk about myself, like I wish that I wasn't in the book basically, but putting myself in the book um, was necessary to talk about something else, which I wish wasn't so important, which is the role of media in not only covering these mass protest events, but reshaping them on the ground. So that little dynamic you outlined at the very beginning ends up mattering. Like there is protest necessarily and always is, uh, is, is in dialogue with, is interacting with the forces of mediation, the forces of, of mediatization, the rep, the ways that media represent the protest, not only to the whole world, but to itself. Um, and so pu putting my own story in there allowed me to kind of like, gave me a better position from which to to critique the, the role of the media in this decade as well. Yeah, no, it's, um, that's amazing. I think that, uh, you know, the media specifically with Brazil and like you being, you know, in the media, it, it seemed like when, when I guess the protests were first starting, there was a certain, um, point of view that the Brazilian media was uh, projecting onto, you know, the protests, and it usually was pretty negative. And it seemed like those tides right. started to turn and like you actually saw that firsthand, right? Like, can you kind of talk about how that um, started unwinding? Yeah, I think the, uh, uh, an interesting thing to reflect on, which I haven't spoken about too much, is that in the beginning of 2013 in Brazil, 
there was no reason to expect any kind of a protest explosion mm-hmm. or, you know, no reason really to think that one was appropriate, except for the fact that, you know, all people all the time deserve better. Right. Yeah, like, of course, yeah. everyone in right. the whole world <laughs> always, except for, you know, a small class of, of, of ruling elites in you know the United States and Western Europe, all people around the world basically deserve more out of the global system. But you would have never identified Brazil in early 2013 as the place that would be about to pop off because there was a very popular democratically elected president, Dilma Rousseff, the the country's first woman president, who took over for another president, Lula, who ended his first term with like 88% approval ratings. Her approval ratings were incredibly high at the beginning of June 2013. And then Fernando Haddad just won an election to take over as the mayor of Sao Paulo. Um, And he was from the same center left or, you know, originally left wing party, the Workers' Party as Lula and Dilma. And he ran for election in that city saying that he was going to rise the bus fare by 20 cents. Like, mm. yeah, that was something he said he was going to do in his campaign. <laughs> he did the George Bush, uh, I will raise taxes move, but he got elected. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, it was he, he rose, he, the, the, the taxes went up less than inflation. The mm-hmm. economy had been quite good. A lot of people had been pulled out of poverty in Brazil. Like, yeah, Brazil was rising one of the... at the time. Like, it's like geopolitical status is, you know, maybe yeah. never been higher. Right. Yeah. And I mean, for for a. For a country in the global south that is not actually on a like a truly revolutionary path, that is not like had a revolutionary group seize the state and like really transform the capitalist economy, for a left of center movement that is participating in the global capitalist economy, you can't really imagine a better performance than what you had from 2003 to 2013. Everybody got a lot better off. You know, tens of millions of of, of, of Brazilians moved into the middle class. The rich got also better off right like he, there was a, like the like fundamental class divisions of of brazil what like kind of really appears as like unofficial apartheid to most um uh, arrivals in the country that wasn't fixed but like things had all mm-hmm. been going sort of in the right direction right mm-hmm. so so you have a group that in early june 2013 puts together a set of protests against the bus fare rise and this is something that they always do this is something they they, they were formed in 2005 out of the global anti or alter globalization movement um, to always push for lower transportation costs, ultimately asking for free transportation. And at the beginning of June 2013, they block streets. They do manage to set off like the kind of ruckus that they're that they're hoping will 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 popularize uh, the issue that will that will force the government to pay attention to their demand. Um, but most of the media, at least, we don't, we don't know about polling, but but it seemed that the country was like tired of this by June 13th. 2013 the the mainstream media in the country says the police need to crack down on these kids like this is not this is they're not they don't have a right to shut down the city because they think that the bus fare should be lower even if everybody kind of would like everything to be cheaper this is a specific issue that a democratically elected representative um, has decided upon but then when they call for the crackdown uh, and I think it's relevant that Brazilian media is a part of that unofficial apartheid system that I kind of described because they don't actually understand what a police crackdown feels like. They've, they're mm-hmm. not part of the yeah. class that is the recipients yeah. right. <laughs> of Brazilian military police violence. So when the crackdown comes, it shocks the whole country. It shocks the Brazilian media, including the exact same people that asked for the crackdown. And the, the narrative shifts. The big mainstream narrative goes from these are punks and anarchists we need to clear off the streets to actually this is a patriotic uprising 
in defense of the right to rise up in defense of something, right? So they have so to figure the out a way. media were actually there on the ground when they saw the crackdown happen, right? Exactly. So this is a key thing that reverberates throughout the rest of the 2010s, is that on June 13th, 2013, I get hit by the, the protest. I'm mm. not, I am I am the victim, quote unquote, who cares? The victim yeah, of the yeah. repression, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> but so are very famously other white members of the Brazilian media, Brazil's mm-hmm. mainstream media, the type of people whose injuries really shock, like bourgeois uh, 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 sensibilities, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, Juliana, someone who I've known for a long time, and then Piero, uh, who's, who I know even better, who's really kind of close. He, he understands quite quite well the, 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 the ideological commitments of the early movement and like their, their, their roots in like punk music and, and the left. Um, these cases go viral, and that's what really makes the country flip, at least in the yeah. media, the mainstream media that end up transmitting the message to the rest of the country because definitionally oh, the rest of the country lives doesn't didn't see the protest with their eyes. They're seeing, they're seeing photographs either in media or on television, either newspapers or on television or on, on Facebook. And so the, the, the viral cases that drive the flip are of the class of mainstream journalists that are like, quote unquote, innocent compared to the other uh, organizers who were deserving of repression yeah. who are um, who are usually outside of the the uh, you know usually not the people that are supposed to be repressed in Brazil and so the the new people and this is like this shift is very strange and I like think about it all the time like hour to hour the shift between the day that the, the media asked for a crackdown and the next Monday Thursday to Monday, the narrative of, of what the, the protest is is entirely changed. And then as a result, the people that come are totally different and they have a different idea of what the protest is all about. And, you know, a lot more happens from Monday to Thursday, you know, mm-hmm. making one full week. But from Monday to Thursday, the new arrivals who are certainly to the right of the originals um, and end up violently expelling the original leftists. Kicking like th- kicking them out of the streets, ripping down their ripping down their flags, threatening them with violence until everyone you know a lot of the original protesters go. We lost, you know, we're going yeah. home, and that yeah. loss ends up being quite important for what comes next in in the rest of Brazilian history. Yeah, and I th- I think some of those those details there are important. I mean, the idea. Uh, I mean, one, that the Brazilian press didn't realize that the Brazilian state might be repressive in a special way until they got, I mean, you know, look, the American press didn't realize that maybe the Saudi Arabian government might be a, a little overly harsh until like Jamal yeah. Khashoggi, right? And here, yeah. in, here in Seattle, the the press didn't learn that the SPD might have some problems until they got tear gassed by SPD and shot with blast yeah. balls. When they were doing it to everybody else, it was fine. But, you know, then it became a, a thing. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to note that the as you were saying that the brazilian press is transmitting this message to the majority of brazilians of what this protest right. is about but they're doing it from a very particular class position like the average yeah. p- person with it i think you mentioned that you're writing for like the the left you know guardian-esque type paper for brazil by new everybody times in, the new yeah, times but, of brazil yeah, yeah. yeah but like someone a, between those two yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. like yeah. The, the leftish <laughs> paper right in that like everybody in the office is white you know in a, in a country oh, no, but like not like oh most people like 100 percent yeah of the newsroom yeah. and this is a country which is majority non-white yeah um, yeah and uh, and again this paper so i was i was i was writing an english language blog for folio de sao paulo which is like 
I think the most important newspaper. There's one that's a little bit more to the right, but Folio would tell you that they're a center left paper. Mm. And like, just like Globo, the mega television conglomerate that like, that's where you watch the football. That's where you watch the novella. That's like the TV channel. Mm. In 2013, they would have been center left of central or liberal of center on like um, on LGBT issues, on issues of they definitely would never align with like the culture war positions of the Republican Party. They would be mm. more culturally liberal in the in the U.S. sense because liberal in Brazil means a different thing, but culturally liberal in the U.S. sense. But when it comes to redistribution and class, like they are clearly like a cl- like yeah. they're very against <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> left economics. It, it turns <laughs> it out they sense. have and, red lines. <laughs> yeah, they have no red lines. They're very much against left economics. They're very against developmentalism. They're they're terrified of the more left, uh, the the more like unambiguously left-wing governments in South America. Um, and yeah, and this is like all an obvious, like, again, like I, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm from the United States. Right. And so even mm-hmm. to me, I came and I was like, wow, wow, this, this is a really particular set of people <laughs> <laughs> that are in charge of the media in this country. Um, and yeah. And so I think they, of course they knew, everyone knew in the back of their head that the police in Brazil kill lots of young people, like young men. Mm-hmm. Cause they're military the police still, right? That's like a, a fragment of the dictatorship. Uh, yep, that, that is a legacy of the U S backed dictatorship, which like, I don't want to get to the end of the book. This is something that we remember by the end of the 2010s in Bolivia, especially, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, like the U.S., all of the coups in the 20th century that go down as quite – like everybody accepts now that they were like horrible imperialist interventions mm-hmm. and 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 ended democracy. Um, they were all preceded by mass protests. Like there mm-hmm. were mm-hmm. quite a lot of Brazilians on the streets, again, with legitimate concern, just like everybody that's ever existed has legitimate current concerns in the global south. Like I said, the exceptions are like – a tiny minority of people in like Western Europe and the United States, people asked for, you know, people came out demanding an end to Zhangu's government in 1964. This was used as a pretext for a military, military coup. Same thing in 1973. Lots of Chileans came out, middle-class protests, mm-hmm. uh, which led to, uh, helped um, justify the impending coup carried out by Pinochet. So yeah, like um, this flip is really strange because I, I talked to Haddad, the, who was the mayor of Sao Paulo at the time, who and now is the minister of finance, an important figure uh, in, on the Brazilian left, and he agreed with me that he didn't think there was a conspiracy in Brazil's newsrooms. I mean, I was there. It's not that Brazil's mainstream media tried to redefine what the protests were about. It's not like they got together and they're like, "Ooh, let's take this left thing and turn it into a right-leaning <laughs> mm-hmm. anti-government thing." Is that in that moment, like this, like? this vacuum in their own heads of like, well, why is it good? It can't be good for the reasons that the organizers say it's good because they want to decommodify all public transportation. These are these are like radical revolutionaries and horizontalists and punks and anarchists that want everything to be free uh, in the world of transportation. That can't be our narrative. Well, what's our narrative? And so they're like quickly like going through their own like uh, uh, ideological treasure chest, be like, well, uh, anti-corruption, that's a really easy one to slide mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. a narrative vacuum because by definition, everyone's against corruption. It's like saying you're against crime, which like, <laughs> yeah. uh, ironically, the big anti-corruption crusader who is praised by Brazilian media and international media, when he ultimately becomes justice minister in the Bolsonaro government, when revealing that he is an extreme right actor, revealing that uh, the whole time he he did have political ambitions his big legislative project is the anti-crime law (laughs) like 
you know, just like anti-corruption, like he's just like he's tautology. Yeah. He's just like he's he's like vacuum personified. But again, it always matters like what exactly you put into the vacuum. And he actually he pretended to be anti-corruption. But he, in, 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 in the real world, there's always a question of what type of anti-corruption crusade you carry out. And in the case of Brazil, it was two right-wing guys collaborating with the U.S. government behind the scenes to go after one particular party and one particular type of corruption. And it always, you know, the particularity is already always reveal themselves in the end. But at the beginning, there was just this big ball of energy and the people that had sort of helped make it happen had to describe what it was and that the explanations they came up with were things that unsurprisingly gelled with their own deep assumptions and ideological predispositions. And, and and so they saw what they wanted to see, just like, uh, you know, CNN saw what they wanted to see in the Arab Spring. Well, in on the ground itself, I mean, so the, the group that's protesting these fair hikes is this group called the MPL, which will <laughs> be important right. for a thing later. But, um, you know, they're sort of like anarchist punks, right? And, right. you know, uh, you know, they, they practice horizontalism, right, which we can talk right. a little bit about. And they essentially, you know, once once the media kind of switches this message to be more about just like national patriotic grievances, uh, they meet a different group on the street, which are football ultras. Right. Right. <laughs> and um, it doesn't go so well for the anarchists. So it's like from the ground perspective of uh, the MPL, whose members you talk to and things like that. I mean, you know, what were the MP- what was the MPL expecting and then what? went wrong i guess <laughs> there was a deep assumption only intermittently articulated but this is a i think this is a deep deep assumption that kind of runs through western thought especially in the first world since the end of the cold war there they believed so they were they were horizontalist which we can talk about what that where that comes from because yeah, it does come from a very specific that. yeah so Horizontalism, I think there's two ways you can describe it. And one is just by like taking the word apart, which means like there's no hierarchy. Everyone's at the same level. So it is a an approach to organization of social movements or, or political organization, um, which is born out of an extreme anti-authoritarian uh, ethos that no one should be higher than anybody else. No one should in the ultimate case even be able to tell anyone what to do. Like you can't even actually have a majority vote and then everyone does what the vote is because that would be imposing uh, a majority will on the individual that didn't want to do that thing. So there's no there's no hierarchies whatsoever. And often this means that no one is allowed to represent um, the group. No, one's, no, no one will be a permanent spokesman. There's a deep suspicion of representation, not only of the group itself, but of like representative structures. And so that's like the that's like what the word means if you think of like the geometric concept. But what it comes out of is the concrete response to the absolute decimation of representative structures in Argentina in 2001. So in 2001, after IMF intervention and the app, just the total collapse of, of not only the state, but the economy and unions and parties, um, the, the real response to the concrete decimation of representative structures was to get together uh, in neighborhood assemblies. And th- this, this like only t- happened for a while and it didn't like, establish you know libertarian communism in argentina like they're still sorting out like the long long consequences of uh default uh, in in the country um but it was incredibly inspiring it looked like a new and 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 um uh uh a inspirational organizational form and so this group did did um like watch videos about you know it's argentina's right next door there's a lot of dialogue back and forth it is taking the, the concrete response to th- 2001 in Argentina and then turning it into a broader 
uh, uh, ideology. And so this group, um, and this part is not ever really, it's like I said, it's only intermittently articulated. But the idea essentially is they knew that they were a small group. Um, they had studied what some other um, uprisings against uh, uh, transportation fees in the country going back to 2003. Um, and they came to the conclusion that a mass uprising, a mass revolt could put pressure on the state to to give in to this one particular demand. Um, and so they always believed in causing and setting off a mass revolt. But then they believed because, you know, they believed they spent a lot of time working very hard. I mean, they were they really believe in in improving society. And they spent all of the first half of the year planning exactly how they're going to set off the popular revolts. Um, not needing to think about what it's going to be because they're gonna they're gonna sort of exit the stage and the popular revolt will be good. And there's lots of ways that you can sort of think why they thought it would be good, but they thought that it would be good. Mm-hmm. If if you get people exploding into the streets behind, you know. Um, behind a particular demand that would transform the country in 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 a positive way, and it just doesn't work out like that. It's different yeah. people that come to the streets than they expect, and it turns out that coming out to the streets after you is not the same as coming out behind you. They, the new, <laughs> a lot of the new arrivals decide that they don't give a shit about what the M- MPL believes the streets are about, that believes the streets are saying, and you get this, you get the right coming to the conclusion, I think correctly, that the meaning of the explosion is up for grabs. It's up for contestation. And they they enter this battle, and I think they ultimately win. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this includes one group that is born explicitly to try to trick people, explicitly to steal the thunder from the original MPL. So you get a group of right-wing sort of libertarian uh, slash anarcho-capitalist slash uh, 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 neoliberal uh, kids everybody's, everybody's are, spines are shaking right now <laughs> yeah. who who are well funded they're not again there's not a lot of them but they're well funded they're well organized they're one of them has been trained by the Koch brothers in the united states in this kind of like international like free market com- comrade training program and um they enter the scene creating the MBL, the Movimento Brasil Livre, which is an attempt to steal the thunder of these other kids who have like really, like really actually put their lives on the line and struggled to create this uprising. Mm-hmm. And this new group pretends to be all of the things that the first group actually is. They pretend even, even to be like in aesthetics, right? Like they're like 18 to yep. 25, like just yeah. like punks too. Like they kind of, you they're know, like, Oh yeah, we're, we're like a band. Like they yeah. sell this. <laughs> they're like, Oh, we're young. We know about music. We use the internet, which like, you know, this is something we could also talk to, but like back in 2012, 2013, everybody thought the internet was also necessarily progressive. Just like mm-hmm. people in the streets yeah. was necessarily mm-hmm. progressive. The internet wasn't necessarily progressive. So they also pretend to be leaderless autonomous or even autonomous because the first uh, mm-hmm. group is very influenced by autonomism uh leaderless apolitical uh uh autonomous but really they're be- they're getting funded by elites and, and getting mm-hmm. funded from the united states to push the state <laughs> in a right-wing direction they're very cynical they have they know exactly what they want and they end up helping to make that happen come back in 2021 after finishing my first book and living in london for a while and i'm back in the country and i'm telling my friends oh yeah i'm here i'm interviewing you know the pt haddad uh the mpl and everybody hears MBL yeah. because the MPL is <laughs> gone. 
like yeah. they still exist. I mean, of course, I did. I mean, I, I but they're not like players on the scene at all. Yeah. Well, and all the, the NPL, original members are not there either, right? Like the MPL, yeah. like in near subjects, like they're not still organizing right. with the MPL. I mean, all these people, just like a lot of the people that I met for my book, they all like go on to do. They never give up on struggle activism. They all do different things, which make a difference in, in the history of Brazil afterwards. Um, but yeah, the M, the MPL stopped mattering to like the people that read the newspaper in 2013, whereas the right. MBL mm-hmm. are in Congress. They entered Congress with Jair <laughs> Bolsonaro after they helped elect him. <laughs> well, you have this really funny anecdote where um, during uh, Doma's impeachment, uh, they uh, after they were, you know, uh, all punked up, they showed up and got press passes to the, con- the congressional floor and showed up in uh, suits, like buttoned down like suits and like uh, ties and stuff. And uh you know, basically witnessed the um, the technical coup on Dilma um, there, which was like kind of like a shock for you because you got to actually see that firsthand too. It's like, oh, these are the same like punkers now, like you know, cheering on this. <laughs> Th- these guys are all dressed to the nines, uh, you know, cheering on Dilma getting ousted. Well, they were their vibe was more. I don't want to go on a ta- tangent here, but their vibe was more indie rock than, yeah. than punk, oh, <laughs> including. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how what, what what age you are, but there was a band that I listened to in the mid two thousands before I had ever been to Brazil that had a few songs in like the indie. This is embarrassing, like the indie sleaze area era. Oh, yeah, have you ever, yeah. have either of you ever heard of the band Bonji Jihole? B O N D E D E R O L E. So this was like. Along with like CSS, the Conseil Ser Sexy, was one of two Brazilian bands that kind of was like in the global, I don't know, like uh, 2007, 2008, like indie rock, mm-hmm. indie electro. Yeah. Um, they could world. be like in an iPod commercial, maybe. Yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah like, you know, like, uh, it's, it's, yeah, Bon Jujuhole, you can look it up. Marina Gasolina was their most famous single. Uh, and then I found out, like, this is a band that I knew about, like, Mm-hmm. like from college or, from, yeah. you know, going out in San Francisco. Turns out we find out after, you know, a few years after the formation of the MBL that one of the main guys who's behind the scenes is a member of this this band, Bon Jujuhole. Oh, my God. That, like, <laughs> they like, which causes like the rest of, you know, because like the rest of the like the Sao Paulo, uh. like queer or like music community is very, 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 very anti-Bolsonaro. So there was this, this caused a big scandal amongst like the tiny community of people in downtown Sao Paulo that, uh, <laughs> that knew these people. But anyways, yeah. So they, they had presented themselves as like indie rockers and, you know, apolitical or, or above, above party politics, but they formed, a, they very, they formed a very, very cynical alliance with the, the, the forces that were going to impeach uh, Dilma Rousseff. And I, in what I call, I think I ultimately come to the conclusion is a, a parliamentary, parliamentary coup. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like, they all have suits and ties because somehow they've gotten passes to be actually inside the proceedings, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is not easy to do, right? Like, no, this no, is not no, like no. anyone could just walk in. Well, it's no, like when they, and, when they uh, cross you the do threshold, have to wear a tie. Their, their lizard skin is actually showing now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, they just don't care. They won. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, of like, course. Right. Yeah, they're having a they, good time. They take the hit. You know, they're yeah, like, yeah. oh, yeah, we set just like Sergio Moro, who the anti-corruption judge who his entire – during the entire – Lava Jato crusade in which, as I said before we started recording, uh, he was really, really uh, wildly and like lavishly praised by Brazilian media and by uh, U.S. media. Sorry, this is actually why we're recording. Whatever. You can cut that if you want. I don't care. Um, (laughs) The whole time he's doing that, he pretends I'll never run for office. I'm a judge. I'm not a political actor. And then as soon as Bolsonaro wins, he just joins the government as a minister, (laughs) which – and. 
I say this the day that he does this, this in itself is an act of corruption because he's put Lula in jail, which helps the other yeah. guy win. And then he is, whether or not this was planned in advance, this is a clear conflict of interest, right? You've put yeah, the yeah. other presidential candidate in prison and then joined the winning. <laughs> so, and then, but it doesn't matter. He's like, oh yeah, I was lying the whole time. I am, I am, yeah, I am a far right political actor. It? What are you, yeah. you going to do about it now? I'm the government. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and this kind of dynamic happens throughout the rest of what I call the mass protest decade. You get CC in Egypt, for example, pretending that somehow he is the inheritor or the creation of the, the 2011 uprising, whereas really he's the counter revolution. Mm-hmm. But he just says that he is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you disagree, then he then the then police pull you, you know, haul you away. Yeah, I mean, there's a deep cynicism uh, to the right wing reaction to this. I mean, obviously, no surprise, but I think captured really well uh, in sort of the way the right's able to manipulate media imagery and things like that with the kids from the MBL leaving, you know, after the uh, the impeachment vote, leaving the you know facility, they're standing outside. You say they're sitting around and they're like having a very serious conversation and then yeah. they see the media and then like again like like a Lovecraft story they all of a sudden spot spa- these like big creepy smiles and turn <laughs> right, right, right. and start doing like a weird media turn and the thing is is like the cynicism it works i mean you give this like i, I think both funny and like fairly heartbreaking a story from one of the people you interviewed, uh, and I apologize for brutalizing everybody's name in Brazil, but Mayara, who basically uh, says, like, you know, I had an aunt who was, you know, conservative or whatever, like, you know, thought that what I was doing was silly my whole life, who then, like, happily told me one day, like, I went, I finally went to a protest from, you know, like, your group, right? But she wasn't yeah. talking about MPL, she was talking about MBL. She had totally right. in her mind replaced the two, just like everybody else had at that point. Yeah, and yeah. this is a really yeah. a tragic one. By yeah. this point, like the, these years are really hard for the MPL. Because they're really, really a group built around a particular tactic. And like, you know, kind of like my whole book is is a history built around a particular tactic. And it starts to fizzle after by the end of 2013. And then by 2014, 2015, 2016, things are really out. Like they're no longer really playing a role in Brazilian politics. But a lot of the left is really, really angry with them. The right is Mm -hmm. pretending to be them and getting away with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, And so a lot of them go through like, again, this is, I don't, you know, it is quite horrible. And this is something that, again, pops up throughout the decade, like depression bad enough that it causes like memory loss and like years of like really difficult times for a lot of these groups. Like, you know, like a lot of Egyptians may have experienced from like 2013, 2015 or something. And yeah, like it works. You know, this is again, this is something we discover about the internet. Like remember, I said, just said in 2012, everyone thought the internet was necessarily progressive because it would lead to increased transparency and raising awareness would be necessarily good. By the end of the 2020s, I think we all realized, especially like the US English language liberal media, oh yeah, on the internet, you could just say anything. And that was like a new, I remember that was like a new discovery in 2015. Like the, the fake news discourse was yeah. initially liberals being like, oh my God, they're just lying. And they get, a, oh, oh no. And then now, of course, everybody knows that it's all lies. Like it's just mm-hmm. like, I don't even know if we like believe in truth anymore to the extent to which it's just like lies piled on lies in, on social media. Um, but yeah, this, this was like, it was really tragic, uh, uh, for her to have that told to her that her aunt believed she was at her protest, but she was at the, the kind of like 
the inverse, the kind of like mm-hmm. uh, the like the evil twin, like the Jekyll, the, the Hyde to their Jekyll, whatever one is the bad one of Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, yeah. You know, everybody at the protest had mustaches and goatees. That should have been the first sign, you know, <laughs> the evil twin yeah. verse. But yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, to that point about, you know, kind of the underlying logic of groups like the MPL and, and other groups that you talk about in the book, right? And, you know, I want to get into this, it's this idea like the, the what you call the, or I guess not what you call but the teleology of liberalism, right? Now, our listeners, we we know we're proud non-readers. None of us went to school. Um, <laughs> can you explain what you mean by the teleology of uh, liberalism real yeah, fast? Yeah, liberal teleology. Yeah. So, um, teleology, especially like uh, tele- teleology in the historical sense, is the idea of history built around an endpoint, uh, that it's leading somewhere. Um, and so this is something that has deep, deep roots. Actually, I, are, I come to the conclusion that has roots in the Christian tradition. It is like a, a, it is kind of like the secularization of eschatology, es- the eschaton being like the end of the world, like the moment when like the heavens open up and God just sorts everything out. Um, and in for... A lot of the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries, especially in the first world, um, things were getting better. There was like technology and social progress did kind of advance hand in hand. Again, if you were like part of the settler class in the United States yeah. or if you were part of like <laughs> yeah. the, the rising bourgeois, you know, not, this is not a universe. This is not universal globally and it's not even universal um, in the countries, but it is universal for like my class, right? Mm-hmm. For the people mm-hmm. that end up didn't end up being sent around the world to interpret the Arab Spring or the Brazilian uprising. And so in the, in the 20th century, you had competing visions of what this endpoint could be. And like Marxism itself, like the most sophisticated um, um, version of it, like the manifesto's version of history moving forward, is not teleological in this vulgar sense where it's just automatically going to happen. But he does identify things that will take us there if we... Uh, if we act upon them. Um, but then on the other side, there's the, there's the, like, there is like the really crude liberal teleology, which comes together in modernization theory in the 20th century, which actually plays a pretty big role in my first book, because this is what justifies quite a lot of U.S. support for military regimes in, in the global South. The idea that, okay, well, actually, the, you know, history progresses through phases, nations progress through phases, and the final endpoint is kind of like being junior America. And you could see like this reading being imposed upon the so-called Arab Spring, even though many of the original organizers of the Arab Spring or what becomes called the Arab Spring by the Western media mm-hmm. uh, believe that they are putting together, that they come together through pro-Palestine solidarity. They believe they're putting together an anti-imperialist movement. They believe that democracy in Egypt will necessarily challenge Israeli and Saudi power. But the way they get read by like CNN is, oh, yeah, they want to be junior America, which is like mm-hmm. horrifying and shocking to them because they have this deep assumption, which becomes the only assumption left, especially uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, is that, oh, the whole world is just kind of falling into place behind U.S. leadership. So especially in the 90s, if you kind of already believed this the whole time, uh, then it becomes really easy to believe in this liberal teleological view of history that like things, progress is happening, things are going forward. And the ultimate outcome of this progress is a system in which every country on earth is a liberal uh, capitalist nation state uh, clustered around the big, like the daddy liberal capitalist nation state, which is the United States. And like um, this kind of approach the, one, the, I, I, the way that I've just outlined is most dominant in 
Western media. But mm-hmm. like this kind of deep assumption that things are moving forward, that things can just sort of move forward automatically, I think is strangely shared by people across the political spectrum who have very different ideas of what forward is supposed to mean. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, towards the end of your book, I mean, you mention uh, that basically there's this idea, which is sort of like the the heroics of the deed or whatever, like this idea if we just kick the machine, right? We just kick it and get it going again because we're moving inexorably towards progress. We'll, we'll start moving in the right direction. But as you point out, it's ironic that both like the anarchists and the conservatives and the one, all believe this, even though they all you know, what they imagine is the right direction are all very different things. Yeah, you know? it's, it's like it's like this. It's like this conception of history where everything is pushing towards X. Yeah. Uh, if you just get this one thing out of the way, it'll get there. <laughs> and for neocons, it's like, oh, you just get Saddam out of the way. And then, the, the you know, you know, uh, Iraq will be a junior partner in the U.S. led or- order order. But then there's another kind of like strand of thinking that it's like, well, everything is like if it weren't for this mm-hmm. unnatural imposition of the, of the state, you would just get libertarian communism. Like all you have to do is get rid of like pull, just pull away the things that are holding this back. And obviously the people will push, push history forward. Once we, once those barriers are removed, you get, you know, you, you, you provide the spark uh, and then the popular revolt um, will push you in the direction of, and then, you know, in you know, by the end of the 2010s, again, you see, not just you liberals or leftists doing this. You see right-wing movements doing this. Be like, well, what if we just storm the Capitol? That will, and then we'll figure out afterwards how that's mm-hmm. going to work out. But if we storm the Capitol, uh, you know, obviously the whole country is pushing towards what we believe it to be pushing towards. We just got to get one or two things out of the way, which was like arguably maybe true back in pre-modern societies. <laughs> like if, if, if all you're dealing with is one bad king and yeah. he's like really clearly bad and everybody agrees that he's like the price of bread is too high and like we need to bring it down then just killing the king is probably going to like lead to lower price of bread like you know problem solved um but in incredibly complex societies where there are m- multiple organized class and political formations all pushing for different things at all times um causing a ruckus or, or creating a, a power vacuum or sparking an insurrection can lead in many, many different ways. And often, you know, that's, again, that's the, that's the, that's the mystery around which the book built his book. How is it possible that they can move in different directions than the uh, original mm-hmm. organizers had hoped for? Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of um, just like the, you bring up like Francis Fukuyama and the end of history and like, you know, the whole, you know, ideology of basically like after the Soviet Union fell, uh, you know, American hegemony is inevitable and everyone just needs to fall in line. And like, you know, there's just something in the way that's preventing people from just becoming a junior partner. Right. And like that's it seemed like that was like a predominant ideology which coincided with the fact that there was really no actual existing alternative on the scale that the U.S. was because that was like the Soviet Union before. Right. right. And the Sino-Soviet right. split made it so that China couldn't really fill that, uh, you know, role in the same way that the Soviet Union did, too. Um it's, you bring up anti-politics as something that kind of comes out of that after, you know, the, which, you know, starts in the 90s, but really had a resurgence in the 2010s, too. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and like the and it's the end of the idea that like there is now any sort of class struggle because with the fall of the Soviet Union and like the idea that, you know, American hegemony is the only, you know, choice um, and the only existing thing that's 
on the market, right? Like, um, you know, struggle in class politics, like kind of moved to the wayside, which seems like you argue, like kind of brewed this type of now anti-politics, right? Can you describe like what like anti-politics um, is and like, you know, kind of from its roots of, you know, what we just talked about? Yeah. So strangely, but not strangely, right? Because they both respond to the same thing, which I'll, descri- which I'll try to describe uh, soon. Anti-politics is a, a response to real conditions. Uh, it is an, an instinctive response to real conditions, which is similar in, in its assumptions to this particular type of mass protest. Because often the anti like this will all become uh, pretty recognizable when we start thinking about it. Like the classic form of anti-politics is like, they're all clowns. All politicians are corrupt. If you throw all the bums out, anything would be better, right? And like mm-hmm. this, this move, this like quite stupid narrative, but you know, <laughs> it's kind of powered by the same assumptions. Like, oh well, the, there's like a quite a horrible set of people that are in the way of the state being good. Get rid of them. Throw in Arnold Schwarzenegger. Throw in Zelensky. Throw in Bolsonaro. Throw in Javier Millet. I think these are all different instantiations of anti-politics. Mm-hmm. Then. Then, of course, like, you know, we got rid of those horrible people that are holding back inevitable, like holding back what the state is supposed to be. Things will get better. And like the this particular form of mass protest, it is a response to a real problem and a problem that is very difficult to to confront or to solve, which is the real crisis of representation, which I think starts in the last 25, so the last quarter of the 20th century, um, as a result of global neoliberalism, as a result of shifts in the global economy, as a result of the end of the Cold War and the the fall of the Soviet Union in the Second World, as a result of the decimation of left-wing political groups um, in the ways uh, that I described in my first book, The Jakarta Method, as a result Mm -hmm. of the, the crushing of labor power in uh, especially in the first world, but um, in, in you know general in a generalized way compared to the first half of the 20th century, um, people start to believe correctly the government that is supposed to represent me is not representing me. The structures that I used to that used to represent me are, do not represent me. The organs which could mediate some kind of a struggle between the streets for the you know the people and the state are hollowed out or gone. Um, and so as a result of this real crisis of representation, which, as I say, like is not easy to solve and has not been solved. Mm-hmm. One really easy answer is like, well, what if we elect Arnold Schwarzenegger? That'll show. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, right? That we just need an man. outsider, a real outsider. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Everybody <laughs> pretends to be an outsider. Obama pretended to be an outsider. Zelensky, this mm-hmm. was his whole thing. His whole thing was that his TV show was like, if you made a normal guy the president of Ukraine, he would do a better job than these, you know, all these bums. And in general... We, you know, I think most people now, especially after the Trump administration, have come to the conclusion that like while that might like get get your blood going, it might be like funny or exciting in the moment of telling the, the elites to fuck off. That does not fix the problem of the crisis of representation. Mm-hmm. And then in a related way, but it's different. And I think that the the strategy of the mass protest, the mass insurrection is a lot more sophisticated and there's a lot more there's a lot more to be to be respectful of, of people really like getting together and, tr- and putting their lives on the line to, to demand improvements rather than just voting for whoever's like the meanest about um, Congress is that there's still the type of mass protest that is possible, or at least the type of mass protest that is easiest to put together is conditioned by all of those things that I just described. There aren't mm-hmm. like 
big mass organizations that would do that can come together. You know, there isn't a, a huge already existing labor movement in the United States that can say we're going to shut down the economy for a month unless you demand a ceasefire in, in Israel. Like that's that doesn't exist. You know, you mm-hmm. can there are right. people that are slowly trying to put it back together. Right. This is something that has actually come out of the ends of the 2010s. But um, the anti-political instinct is some is is a I think a really bad answer to a serious question, which is, why don't these structures represent us anymore? And, you know, usually when you just get whoever makes fun of the existing politicians, they don't they don't do a good job. Yeah. And I mean, in the case of Brazil, right, you have like these in a tragic story, you have like some very farcical elements in that there's a sort of crusty the clown type figure yep. who gets elected on a, you know, couldn't be couldn't get worse kind of campaign who ultimately <laughs> like won by a landslide. Right. <laughs> he was by far the he got more more votes than he got twice as many votes as the second most popular congressman <laughs> in the, in the 2010 election. <laughs> but you know, yeah yeah and he ends up having this like pivotal role in the impeachment of dilma yep. right where yep. he's expected to vote no to the impeachment and then you know I, you, reading it i mean it's so silly i was picturing i was in my imagine in my headspace watching it it was an episode of the simpsons like it was so bizarre but it's created out of this milieu of of anti-politics right this like this post-Cold War result of the Cold War thing. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and again, the the real, the strange paradox of Brazil, and this is what Haddad spoke about a lot with me in, in the interviews, is that this is a globalized tendency, which I think the PT like agrees exists, the Workers' Party in Brazil, that neoliberalism has like frayed and, and challenged and almost decimated representative uh, democracy but they would argue that actually in brazil the state was doing okay at responding to the streets there are all kinds of other protest movements that do enter negotiations with the state successfully but this one group had insisted on not doing that and in, in, in pushing for a popular revolt and the explosion sort of the haddad says that there, this is a short circuit between a tactical approach that was developed elsewhere and the way that the system is actually set up in Brazil. And so Chiririca, ironically, um, and again, like the, th- what, like, I think I emphasize this in the book, his 2010 campaign is really funny. Like it is mm-hmm. like, he's like the Spanish B character from the Simpsons, except that it's not like a sad, <laughs> stupid, he's like really is like a really skilled performer. And as, if you got, if you talk to him, he's not like, you know, he's not an intellectual, but he's clearly a very smart, like he's a funny, talented performer. But this 2010 campaign that he launches, which the tagline for his, uh, his, his campaign is Voce no Chiririca, Pior que na Fica, which is vote for Chiririca, it can't get any worse. Um, almost everyone would recognize like that is maybe like the best year in Brazilian history. Like um, it happens at exactly the moment when like the economy is growing really rapidly as the rest of the world is reeling from financial crisis. Um, the Lula is finishing up a turn with, as I said, 88% approval ratings. Um, Dilma Rousseff, who has her own political history who she has a history of struggle against the dictatorship she was tortured but essentially all it took for her to get elected was lula to say that's that's Mm. who i want you to vote for because things were going so well politically like impossible to imagine um for a lot of other countries in 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 2010 
And it really gels because like, even if the PT is doing as well as you can do in the very imperfect global system uh, at the time, everybody knows that it's not, it should be better. And everyone's right that Mm -hmm. it should be better. And everyone around the world, you know, 99.999% of Ukrainians in the beginning of 2013 had a really, really good reason to be upset and a good reason Mm -hmm. to believe that things should be better for them. Um, But then the particular form of the response to this truth um, um, really matters uh, in, in the ways that it creates certain outcomes or pushes pushes quote unquote history in, in, in unexpected directions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like with just to kind of tie the Brazil story together, it's like during the protest, the Dilma's approval rating dropped. I think you said thirty points within a week or so, right? And it was like kind of hard to even qualify why exactly you know it dropped in that way. Um, and that then led to, you know, the procedural coup, um, afterwards. Uh, but her approval rating never recovered from that too. And like, I think that that was like a really, you know, interesting way from when we talk about the 2010s where, um, you know, in 2010, as you said, Brazil's best year, uh, you have the anecdote of how, um, you know, people in Brazil are getting like lifted out of extreme poverty and just you know, uh, object poverty uh, so much that a lot of the commercials that you see on TV are like training people how to be like consumers and how to participate in this economy, <laughs> right? Like it was like a very new thing for a lot of people to even be participating in like the modern system that's designed. Yeah. And this is another thing that's really like paradoxical and ends up being tragic is that the critique of the Lully years that is made by, I mean, I, I cite uh, Hosanna Pinheiro Machado, who did a event with me in Dublin last week, who says that the, the Lulista mode of social inclusion was inclusion through consumption. So these previously marginalized, previously excluded um, Brazilians were brought into the system through consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when consumption goes away, then you lose them. And that's then a lot of them uh, end up uh, migrating to the far right when, when this basis of inclusion just disappears from underneath them. But that is, again, like... That's the same kind of critique. That's basically the same direction that the MPL is coming from. They're saying, okay, great. There's a central left government. People can buy refrigerators. People uh, can buy televisions for the first time. But we want to lower the cost of public. We want to improve public services. We want to decommodify mm-hmm. more of life. We want to we want to drain less of that income from the pockets of working class Brazilians. And 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 like this was a common slogan that that. Dilma and Lula had to interpret the uprisings as like, we've taken care of inside the house. They're asking for improvements outside the house, right? Mm -hmm. And um, ultimately, it didn't matter that the MPL wanted something that many people, that most people in Brazil wanted, which is better public transportation. It didn't matter that they were right about the limits of the way that the PT had participated in global neoliberalism. What mattered was the tactical form that they chose and the doors that that opened to other forces in society that they weren't thinking about when they put together June 2013. And this is the strange, deeply confounding, tragic uh, uh, outcome that like really puzzles like, you know, no one has stopped talking about this. You know, there was like the 10th, 10 year anniversary earlier this year. And like everybody has a million different interpretations. And the interpretation that I come to, and I'm kind of stealing this from Rodrigo Nunes, this a Brazilian philosopher who's like was there like when the MPL was formed. 
um, is that you can't really look upon these 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 kinds of explosions and come up with a coherent narrative. Like when there's two million people on the streets mm-hmm. for two million reasons, or maybe more than two million reasons, uh, it's very difficult to come up with a story that actually makes sense. So that's why I try to put the whole thing uh, in chronological order to build one single global story, which hopefully mm-hmm. allows our reader to not only kind of get a sense of, you know, I think... Hopefully, people can come to this in book and be like, oh, now I know more or less what happened in the so-called Arab Spring. Now I know where Bolsonaro came from. Oh, now I know what Gezi Park was about. Oh, now I know what happened in Hong Kong. Um, but then also by putting that history in chronological order as it actually happened, you can see the way that all these movements learned from or didn't learn from each other, copied each other in ways that were productive or unproductive, and then often were interpreted by people like me as if they were the th- same thing when they really weren't, which was often very unproductive. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so gut-wrenching really reading all of these stories, um, you know, and I love how you then baked in some pretty like humorous anecdotes, you know, almost like uh, there was just some like comedic breaks involved in like the recurring theme that you personally had of witnessing something and maniacally laughing at the absurdity, right? Whether it was like when uh, the military police went on uh, basically on like strike to protest, uh, basically meaning that they weren't uh, enforcing any like, uh, you know, crime. And you got to see like uh, basically like uh, a petty crime, like fiesta where like right. you know, people were just, you know, uh, pickpocketing. And it was just like, it kind of drove you and your friend to just like witness this to like uh, shock and then laughter. And the same thing happened during the World Cup where you saw uh, the infamous uh, match between Germany and Brazil where uh, Brazil was hosting the, the World Cup and uh, they ended up losing in the final seven to one. And right. this slogan seven to one or right. saying of seven to one really became a centerpiece like this is like one year really, you know, uh, after 2013, um, and, uh, that everything that happened after, uh, you know, was referred to as a seven to one, if it was something that was like really bad, it was a right. national, uh, travesty and this like travesty and pain almost manifested like after it was like shocking and horrifying. And after a while, the Brazilians started cheering for the Germans, you know, like after they scored yeah. their sixth and seventh goal, cause it was so almost ridiculous that you couldn't even believe your eyes. Right. And it's, right, I felt right. like those were, that, that was like a very interesting analogy to maybe what people were even feeling on the ground at the time. Yeah. Again, this is something that I, I hope, I mean, like, I, I think that like sometimes in this book, there's a kind of like a, uh, uh it's me, but there's like a, 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 a an, an omniscient narrator, narrator who's like recounting history from this, like from, you know, the voice from nowhere in a very journalistic sense. And other times it's like me, you know, like I'm saying, I'm using like the first person and there's sometimes where there's like a blending of my subjectivity to, in, to, in some ways with the Brazilians that are, re- are recounting the same story to me. And in this, this thing is something else that I like. It's not just me that reacted this way. I took this from a lot of people that lived through it. This became like a national move. This became like a national conversation about this strange way of responding to crisis and then a worse crisis and then a worse crisis and then a crisis that's even worse than that and then the crisis that like surely is the worst one possible and then it gets even worse so and there's this and this is a brazilian response that there's this kind of manic laughter at 
no way it's actually worse than that. And this just keeps happening. And there's like another, so is like another seven to one is like, a, is a phrase that becomes dominant between 2014 to 2017, 18. Like, oh, this is another case of what Germany did to uh, Brazil in that game. Because again, after like the third or fourth goal, it just became so unbelievable that they were still scoring, that people be, like <laughs> broke into this like insane like like a psych like a psychotic break almost of laughing and cheering for Germany. Mm-hmm. Um and from 2013 to 2014, this happens at like a, at the national political level. Like the original MPL in 2014, a center-right candidate runs for office and the idea that he might win this guy who is like just a little bit to the right of the 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 existing government is like seems like the end of the world that is it would be insane Mm -hmm. for that to happen but then Dumont comes back and then adopts immediately uh austerity policies and then there's an economic crisis and then they start talking about impeachment and then they actually impeach her and then they bring in this guy michelle temer who has like six percent approval ratings who like guts <laughs> guts guts all parts of the brazilian state he, he 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 does everything the business class wants him to do surely he can't get any lower than that and then this guy who spent his entire career threatening to rape like saying that other congress uh, uh members deserve to be raped and defending the dictatorship he's actually running and people and then he actually wins and then there's a pandemic and there's just and then there's start, I mean, by it gets to a point where you just can't even sustain this sort of this this disbelief anymore and you just kind of accept it as normal then you now looking back on 2010 the idea that you know chiririca was saying it can't get any worse is just like the cruelest irony of them all but yeah this is um both of those elements i'm glad yeah like I, i'm glad that you connected them because i'm not even sure if i had connected them myself at this point um watching the police intentionally allow crime to run rampant right before in in 2013 because they didn't like they didn't like that haddad was trying to create treat crack addicts um as uh, uh, human beings and a social problem rather than a, a criminal problem so they were just trying to cause problems for the for the mayor. And again, there was no way to respond to like just chaos of this than just like this kind of strange psychotic break, which is becomes like a national a national mood from like yeah, yeah, 20, 2014 yeah. to twenty nineteen, especially <laughs> anyone that's not on the extreme right, basically. Yeah. Well, I think maybe that's a good time to talk about uh the role of like the internet and pop culture because uh you know, one, if you're going to have a psychotic break, the Internet's for you. And yeah. uh, I, I think it's interesting because in this sort of uh, liberal theology of like ever advancing progress and in this sort of anti-politics, like the Internet is made for that. And part of it is that it has this veneer of uh, sort of like independence or like a politics, right? Like it's a totally open forum where you can do whatever, right? And I want to point our listeners to an article you wrote in The Baffler, which is sort of a, a, a shortened or more pointed uh, version of a chapter that you have uh, right. in the book called Surfing USA, uh, where you make this comment, which I think is great, uh, the most succinct way to say this. When you're on the Internet, you're basically in the United States. And right. uh, that actually flavors everything in the Internet. And maybe you could expand right. on that a little bit. Yeah, I think that it ends up really mattering. So. The there's a strange way. I mean, like all of the things that I try to analyze in this book are strange enough that any one explanation would be insufficient and be doing like real disservice to the to the phenomena Um, to explain how these mass protests got so big. You need to have multiple causality. 
and and you have to have a mix of various ideological and material factors. And I think there's, as, as I say, there's like an elective affinity between certain pre-existing ideological trends, especially in the U.S. media, um, the concrete material life of people around the world, and this new set of structures, really a new set of companies, uh, capitalist firms based in my home state of California, which change the way that we experience life to some extent. Um, and and these Calif- the reason I always say like California-based for-profit capitalist firms is to remind myself uh, and the reader that we didn't get like social media in the abstract. We got a very specific type of social media on a very specific type of internet, which is very different than all the other types of social media that you could have imagined and all the other types of uh, uh, internet that you could have imagined. And I think it ultimately does matter that there, there is also elective affinity, affinity between some of these like anarcho-punk or uh, radically anti-authoritarian impulses which existed in some parts of the world. But there's, you know, objectively there wasn't that many people that were, you know, uh, that believed self-consciously and explicitly in horizontalism. But there's an ex- elective affinity here between all these other things and techno-utopianism, like a kind of a libertarian Californian idea that, well, once you get everybody on the internet, uh, you make the same rules for everybody. You have concrete horizontality. You have the fact that everybody technically, technically everybody's at the same level. Um, That will necessarily be progress. And of course, the US government and the representatives of the US state and major media in the United States all run with this narrative. And I think it's not a coincidence that these firms end up being a really important and growing part of U.S. power. So, like, there's a lot. Of, again, there's elective affinity. It makes sense, you know. It makes material sense why everybody would would buy in in the government at least would buy into this narrative because it helps to conquer the world uh, via Facebook and uh, Instagram and Twitter, and you know, and also makes sense why they pretend that TikTok is scrambling people's brains in a in a more malicious way than all of the Californian firms are scrambling <laughs> people's brains because it's Chinese, even though they all scramble our brains, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, the point I think that I try to make in that article is one, the internet came from a very specific place. It was put together by the US Army during the Cold War. That matters. And also that uh, the culture of the internet is 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 hierarchical, even if it's not, even it's if it's apparently Horizontal, and this is a thing that comes up over and over historically, and I think in the 2010s, is that horizontality or apparent structurelessness always takes on some structure. You mm-hmm. should, like, And if it's not the structure that you've picked, it's often the structure that you don't want to pick. So in the case of uh, Instagram, technically anybody can be on there, but the culture is shaped by the first movers. Uh, for quite a long time, the vast majority of people on the internet were American. I think this shapes the culture that comes afterwards. Just like I think it matters. There's one Brazilian political scientist that makes this point, which I was really impressed by, is that, oh, well, like it really matters that the first people to get on the internet in Brazil were like upper middle class white Brazilian boys. Because that shaped, that they end up creating like the rules of the culture. And then ultimately everyone else is um, poured into that that uh, structure, like that structure that's not supposed to be there. And then they have to sort of fight over, you know, battle over what the Brazilian internet is all about. So I think it does matter that, uh, uh, that, these, that these are firms based in California. And there is, yeah, as, as I said, there's a lot of overlap between techno-utopianism and sort of the belief that, well, if we get 
the word out to everyone about a bad thing the government is doing, then that will cause it to stop. And like I, t- I pulled this out of the book, but like the like most tragically stupid instantiation of the of the I think do you know where I'm going with this? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I do. Think so. I, I, I think, think so. so. Yeah, I, 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 the I, the most yeah. tragically yeah. St- stupid instantiation <laughs> of that that like little vignette that you cited from the book at the very beginning of the interview, or the beginning of the podcast, is Coney 2012, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This poor guy in San Diego <laughs> believed that he knew about a bad thing happening in Africa <laughs> and believed, truly believed that if you got everyone else to know then that would somehow cause the bad thing to go away. Like yeah. never, like there was no, there was no theory of change at all. It was, yeah. let's, it was the whole campaign, huge amounts of money, huge amounts of energy was make him famous. Right. It's like yeah. arguably he already kind of, what well, I think he didn't even really understand what Coney was still doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not, you know, there, again, there's no global referee that just like plucks bad guys off of, out of the jungle of Africa. If the whole world like points out that they're committing a foul, you know, and, uh, and also <laughs> you could just take 1% of the money that was involved in Coney 2012 and just like stop people from starving right now. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and then he, and then this, and then like the thing that other movements in this book, confront like the fact that there is absolutely no automatic process of change i think like drives him insane right like he ends up like yeah he ends up like raving mad on the streets of. oh um, yeah no i remember like he had like this he was like completely naked on the streets like having like a talking like at 4x speed talking about like uh talking to a non-existent siri i have that memory seared into my mind um that where that was like a week after coney 2012 blew up i mean i remember our our teacher the day that coney 2012 youtube video dropped um it had millions of views and at the time like you know the view count that i saw was just unbelievable like i've never seen anything like that on the internet and that was like um we got to my high school teacher like projected it in class to like show as like you know uh in our u.s history class and like that was like kind of like the lesson and we had to talk about joseph coney what was the the lesson well the thing is is like (laughs) with the internet anything is possible like it's just like there wasn't any lesson there wasn't it was just like so what what he is doing is pretty bad right and it was like yeah it was like you know, like this, this happens all over Africa. And we're like, yeah. oh, all right. Well, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know, like, that was it. Again, this relates to that other point. Like the vast majority of humanity have something really, really real to complain about. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, this is maybe the, like, we forgot, we forget about it sometimes if you are like in the, one of the dominant classes in the United States. But like, yeah, everybody are like, there's a million bad things happening in Africa. Right. And so the point of like serious, political analysis or like historical materialism is to be like, given what exists, given what is happening now, what are the ways that we can act upon the world to actually make real improvements, right? Like that, mm-hmm. that's the, that's the more mature or sophisticated version of the teleology in, in the communist manifesto, right? Or that's like what, that's what like serious social commitment is all about. It's like, we all know that there's a million bad things happening everywhere. What are the ways that we can improve them, given what we know about what they exist, rather than just you know, act as if we already live in a perfect world and that will somehow bring it about, or pick one thing and point at it? Because again, we found out again this was um, this was really widely believed. I mean, like 
you may, might have seen in the book, but you know, you, you didn't bring it up, so I will. But Gordon Brown, the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, like said, you could never have another, you could never have another Rwandan genocide because of the internet. Yeah, people would see it. <laughs> people would see it happening, and then the, again, question mark, question mark, question yeah. mark. Like what? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The, well, you know, it also implies War, those, those other genocides weren't seen, like that people didn't know that the Holocaust was right. happening or whatever. It's like a weird right. uh, whitewashing right. of history as well. Yeah, it really believes yeah. in like it believes that the liberal, liberal international dream was ever real, like that there mm -hmm. was actually ever a real set of international laws and the liberal, you know, rules-based liberal international order. Because, like, the Syrian civil war grows out of the so-called Arab Spring and, like, it's awful, awful things are happening mm -hmm. the whole time. And just the simple knowledge of them does not solve the issue. You yeah. know, that it doesn't stop them from happening. Of course, now we're living through, like, the most horrible, you know, I could have never imagined when I first got on the internet in, like, the late 90s that this would be my experience now of the internet, waking up and watching, you know, being bombarded with pictures of dead children and then... Mm -hmm. Again, believing somehow or another that like the reproduction of these images is some part of the struggle. Yeah. But knowing yeah. that that's not actually what really affects Israeli decision making policy. So we all like get online and we just spend all day looking at horrible, horrible images and then we do it again the next day. And, yeah. and that was that's not what I thought the Internet was going to be when I was 14. And I, again, one of the points I hopefully that comes across in the book is it doesn't have to be. Like mm -hmm. the internet that we got is not the only possible one. It's only been around for a little bit of time compared to how long the internet's going to be with us, like thousands of years, if we make it thousands of years. So it yeah. makes sense to think like, why is it like this? Why do they yeah. take it away from us? Um, and how do we actually act so that the worst actors in the world have to change their behavior? Yeah. And I mean, you know, the, the problem with the if we just all saw it, it would change is that it negates the idea that this these acts, you know, however violent or horrifying they are, are acts of political contestation between like actual forces, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, for as horrifying as it is to go on Twitter and see, you know, what is happening in Gaza. Uh, you know, it just came out today that the IDF runs their own snuff like you know, uh, I think right. it's, uh, you know, whatever, you know, where they show pictures of them doing the violence and they all cheer to it. So it's like, yeah, there, there are people who are going to see that and they're going to love it. Right. Like these are this is political because we haven't dealt with the actual politics of what's happening. And I think, you know, in your article and in the book, I think you make a point of like America created the Internet. The Internet, therefore, is a deeply unserious place as far as oh, yeah. politics. <laughs> what I say, <laughs> what I say, I started the article, I started the article saying, how would you describe the Internet? And it's the same way that most of the the United, the world would describe Americans, which is annoying. Yeah, uh, it's, <laughs> it's loud. It's obnoxious. It's flashing lights at you all the time. It's like self-centered and stupid. And it just never stops stalking um and i think yeah i think that's not i think you know if i think on the one hand if it were if the internet were not from the u.s it would be a little bit different but i also even think if the united states had invented the internet in like the 30s or 40s things would be different yeah like yeah you would have had like a keynesian idea of what the internet was supposed to be you would probably have the thing that only like the most radical um people are asking for now which is like public social media i think that if yeah, the internet yeah, right. was created in the united right. states in the 30s and 40s the dominant ideology would be like, oh, well, this is a public service. This is infrastructure. This should be run yeah. by the post office or the, and like, or some combination of like 
the UN and the US post office and the Soviet, like, you know, intelligence, you know, like, you know, whatever mm-hmm. the, the Soviet version of uh, 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 like public school system or whatever. But because it was invented and then privatized in the 80s and 90s, you just got the entire thing handed to oligarchs. Just like in the 90s, the dream was that if you just got rid of the Communist Party, the Soviet Union, that would be good somehow. But actually, yeah. all of the assets that were created by the sweat and blood and struggle of the Soviet people over the entire existence of the USSR were just handed to oligarchs. Um, yeah. And that was, you know, that was that what that tends to be what happens when you just get rid of what's there because yeah. someone, yeah. you know, uh, uh, and the handing of the Internet to oligarchs in the US, I think, has a lot to do with the handing of the factories to oligarchs in, in Russia in the mm-hmm. 1990s. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, and I mean, reading your book, I mean, just on a side note, it, it did make me think a lot about uh, the fall of the Soviet Union in the 90s in that, like in the stories you tell, there's a lot of people there who came out to speak out against, say, the Soviet government or the East German state or whatever. But then, you know, afterwards, when talking about it, we're like, look, we just wanted it like to be able to travel more. Like we didn't want to not yeah. have health care and not have like, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. like we didn't want to lose all those things. Right. But you know, once the process sort of got into motion, they were no longer in control of the sort of political forces at play. Well, this is the this is another another act of elision, which is per- performed probably unconsciously. But the sort of CNN narrative of the end of the Cold War, or like you know ABC News, whatever was the dominant um, uh, outlets at the time, um, represents the the crowds in the former Soviet Union or in, or in former Warsaw Pact countries as asking for junior partner status in the American empire. Basically like, oh, mm-hmm. we, want to, we want to be capitalist. We want to be pro-American. Uh, we, want, we, want, we want full liberalism now. Whereas it, like empirically this falls apart really quickly, even in East Germany, which, is, which was the one country where you could believe that, oh, actually we will be invited into the first world. And they were the one country that actually was because West Germany paid for it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> They were actually – they believed they were asking for often more democratic so- socialism, a, mm-hmm. a, more, a more liberal version of the social uh, welfare state that they had counted on as, 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 as the precondition to more progress. They never thought that progress would have been getting rid of all that. And uh, Leah Ippi's book um, on Albania is really interesting because eat, like that's one of, one of the most repressive countries in the former – European communist world. Uh, do you know this book I'm talking about? No, no. No, actually, no. Haven't heard of it. Um, it is called Free. And, and like, you know, whatever, Albanian left. You oh, know, okay, yeah. It, it is not like a, 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 like a pro-Albania communist book. It is not like mm-hmm. a, a left, 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 left-wing book. But what the point that she makes is like for even for her family that was at the at the – uh, that was repressed, especially violently, by an especially repressive European communist government. What they got was worse. Yeah, like as bad as it was, it was right. worse. And like Westerners just like struggle to believe her when she says that that that's even possible. Because again, there's this narrative. It's like, well, you were asking to join the West, and that's what you got. Well, first of all, we weren't asking for that, and we didn't get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. that's the real issue there. Um, and this is the you know, and that and that narrative, the one that was wrong ends up shaping the way I think that these uprisings were covered in the 2010s. The idea that the people of Egypt were doing Berlin Wall Arab mm. style was picked up really immediately. 
even as I said, even if, as I said, the original organizers saw themselves as anti-imperialist and they saw themselves as um, desperately opposed to U.S. backing of Israel and the U.S. invasion of Iraq and so on, um, it was read as if this was the case that they're just asking to be junior America. And mm-hmm. and 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 the and then the other really really tragic thing is when when there are quite a lot of people that are asking to be integrated in the Western system, this is often not granted, right? This is mm-hmm. this is yeah. This after the cameras are gone, after the people like me leave, the people are left with nothing other than oh, pat on the head, thanks for, thanks for fighting Russia, thanks yeah. for giving yeah. Russia yeah. a black eye. <laughs> yeah, uh, because from 2014 to the Russian invasion, you know, obviously horrifying invasion of Ukraine in uh, the beginning of 2022, it's not like the United States and the West like lavished riches upon the people of Ukraine. Ukraine continued to be a place where people had a very, very good reason to complain about the state of affairs. They didn't get, you know, they didn't they didn't get invited into the rich West that that I grew up in. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it's worth talking a little bit about that, because I mean, we talked about Brazil and, you know, it has these kind of, you know, somewhat farcical elements towards the end. Uh, but maybe to invert, you know, Marx's, co- you know, comment or whatever that, you know, at this time at first is farce and next is tragedy. Like the Ukraine story only got significantly worse since you finished writing the book. And, you know, obviously, yeah, we've patted them on the head and told them thanks for the hundred thousand or more dad. Uh, see you later. Uh, by the way, uh, great that you've sold off all of your infrastructure as well. I'm sure that's going to pan out really well for you in the future. Um it's this really tragic situation. And I think as you go across the, the countries that you survey in the book, you know, you, you can you can kind of feel because you're talking to the participants, you can sort of feel the movements like you can feel like, oh, I could see where in Brazil you thought like that this was going to go this direction and, and it just didn't. Right. But in Ukraine, it feels like even from the beginning of the Euromaidan, like, of course, everybody has a reason to be mad. Ukraine is the poorest country in Europe. But like from the beginning, you're like shit these guys are fucked like you know the like anarchists and stuff they interview you're like you guys are screwed like when they go uh when they're forming the like militant bands the hundreds or yeah, whatever the, the, the hundred year, yeah, year yeah. and they go to like the little information booth in the center of the year might on like we'd like to form an anarchist hundreds and they're like uh come back tomorrow and come back unarmed right. and we'll discuss it right and you're like right. why did you come back like what? Yeah, no, yeah. this is a problem <laughs> like yeah yeah like, this is a... but uh it just seemed like such a disaster from the beginning and this is where I kind of really get into me and Munya's theory, which I feel like is not a theory. This is a sequel to the Jakarta method, right? Like <laughs> the Cold War and the global Cold War is the prequel to the story and how countries were impacted by the global Cold War matters in the 2010s yeah. movement. And the fact the fact that you, Ukraine had this insane right wing element that was so ready even as a minority to take control of your minority yeah you know uh, like you make the joke about how in ukraine people don't deny being fascist they just argue about what type of fascist they are or whatever in this right wing <laughs> yeah. but that is a product of the post-world war ii cold war the left behind right. forces the state behind forces right the you know u.s pushing the most ultra right groups in eastern europe you know to engage in terrorist actions against the Soviet Union, et cetera, et cetera. But like, that's mm-hmm. why those groups are still so vital in Ukraine today. And then given the opportunity are able to rush in and fill this vacuum. So I guess some, some maybe thoughts on that about like the role that the global cold war had in setting up some of these uh, movements for 
you know, ultimately the failure, however you want to describe it, the disaster that some of them became. Yeah, I mean, as yeah, and like this, the far right nationalists that end up playing some role in mm-hmm. the final outcome of Euromaidan, even though they have a tiny percentage of uh, Ukrainians, um, and you know, they a lot of them do trace their ideological lineage, lineage to the UPA or Bandera, uh, and there was some limited. Um, like CIA flirtation with support for for that um, anti-Soviet insurgency after the end of World War II, but there's also just like there's also like the 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 narrative that can that survives that that particular narrative about Ukrainian nationalism often survives in Canada and the United States um, more and uh, uh, to a greater extent than it does in Ukraine itself, and certainly that's that that is about Cold War um, alliances, but yeah, I think that. It is an indirect sequel to the Jakarta method um, for two reasons, I think. The precondition for the phenomenon that I build the book around is the establishment of the US-led global capitalist system, which is shaped through imperialist violence as the the first book lays Mm -hmm. out, um, and which ultimately concludes with the end of the Cold War and the concrete decimation of a lot of the 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 organizations that I spoke about earlier that would have organizations I spoke about earlier that might have been a position to try other things in addition to protest, not necessarily instead of, but in addition to protest uh, parties and unions and, and civil society organizations. Um, and then the second reason that it's an indirect sequel is that while the book is not about the formation of that system, like. The U.S. Empire is not like the protagonist that opens every chapter. Every chapter mm-hmm. is o- opens on at the street level with people organizing some kind of a movement in national circumstances. But of- often what happens unexpectedly and tragically is the contours of that global system become visible in horrifying ways. Mm-hmm. Um, after this, the apparent moments of success, the the ways in which they are still living in a system shaped by imperialist violence and capable of imperialist violence is often shocking and unexpected. And, and, and that the, the, the contours of that system become visible in different ways. I mean, in, in Libya, it's like incredibly obvious. Again, Libyans have very good reasons, like almost everybody else, um, to be upset about their society, their government. And NATO uses legitimate criticisms of Gaddafi as, as an excuse to launch a regime change operation which destroys the country mm-hmm. in Bahrain where which is like a I don't want to you know absurdly unjust circumstance which is a Shia minority is governed by a Sunni monarchy which represses the majority mm-hmm. right like what they're asking for is so absurdly and un- unambiguously just, at least according to the standards that we say that we believe in, uh, uh, in the liberal global north. But yet it is crushed immediately by Saudi Arabia, who just drives over the bridge and, and crushes the uprising and throws everyone in jail, especially the the secular or left-wing Sunnis that were um, accused of sort of betraying um, uh, 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 their Sunni uh, overlords. Now, mm-hmm. in Brazil, it comes slower, right? Like the, the counterattack... Uh, and its relationship to U.S. empire uh, is a lot more subtle, and it comes more slowly. And in, in, in Ukraine, it's not; it's 
the position of the U.S. matters the whole time, and the position of the matter the the, the U.S. matters for the final outcome. Um, but it's not it's not it becomes clear in a more subtle way than Libya being bombed. So mm-hmm. I think in that way, it's in those two ways, it's an indirect sequel. It's the the system that the first book establishes uh, as having been. Uh, put into place by the end of the 20th century conditions the types of responses that are possible or at least easiest mm-hmm. um, in the 2010s. And then often the a, apparent initial successes of those movements run into the horrible reality of a still existing imperialist system. Yeah. And it, it, it makes a lot of sense. I think that um, I noticed that Leninism is also brought up a lot and like this dichotomy between the new left and old left. And I remember both when you talked about, uh, like interviewed a lot of people at the end of the book, like you did in the Jakarta method. And if we burn, um, one of like the, I saw a common through line where, um, you know, people, let's say like in the PKI or, you know, after, um, you know, decolonization of the 1950s in the mid century, um, you know, some parties, some socialist and communist parties opted for uh, electoralism instead of uh, armed struggle. Um, right. And there was this kind of, uh, I guess, push and pull between uh, like armed struggle and electoralism. Like, how are we actually going to manage uh, decolonization, right? And like becoming right. our own self determined country. Um, and there were definite disagreements. Uh, but one thing that uh, people in the former, uh, well, within the PKI who went through uh, the mass genocide, as well as that being exported around the world in Latin America, um, as much as they still believed in like what they were doing, right. And there was like a sense of, you know, looking at, you know, the revolution, let's say like in um, like Mao's revolution, for instance, in the communist uh, uh, party of China, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, you know, fighting against the nationalists and the Japanese, as much as like that was successful, that wasn't necessarily fun, and it wasn't um, like a good time, you know, for a right. lot of people. Right, <laughs> no, the Long March not was not like you know no. uh, <laughs> something that like people w- would like willingly want to do, right? But right. even though it was successful, so um, there's some empathy with seeing why the PKI might be like, say, maybe we shouldn't voluntarily try to do that. But um, ultimately, yeah. it was the Leninists who proved that that was the only actual option that uh, they, you know, could within this, you know, new global capitalist system that was unfolding, right? And like, you know, um, they weren't, the PKI was like, not necessarily allowed to do like liberal electoralism, right? In that way, right? right. Um, yeah, because they just got crushed. Um, right. In the same way, it seems like a lot of people who really did believe in horizontalism, um, came to that same conclusion about Leninism too, who they thoroughly rejected Leninism in the same uh, type of way where they're looking back on history. And I think there's more uh, allusions to, you know, uh, anti-communism and the Cold War um, that have something to do with the way that we process uh, the old left and like the you right. know failures of those. Uh, but it seemed like a lot of people who were really true believers in horizontalism also came to the conclusion at the end of the book that, yeah, maybe actually this tendency might have been the <laughs> right move, right, in retrospect, right, because we actually yeah. got to experience what happened. Yeah, that's an interesting corollary. I hadn't thought about that. Um, it's an interesting corollary that in the Jakarta method, 
the PKI, it makes a lot of sense. It's really understandable mm-hmm. why they would opt for mass rallies, electoral politics, and pressure on the president if it appears that that route is open to them. And it appeared, you know, I mean, there were some people that knew along the, the you know, you know, the, the fact that the army has more guns is going to matter in the final instance. But it's understandable that if that seemed available, that it made a lot of sense to stick with that route. The, the PKI believed that they were doing things differently than the USSR had or that China had. They believed that being very, very popular. Um, they believed that being able to organize mass rallies. They believed that having quite a lot of influence on Sukarno, the president, that was enough. And it was understandable why they believed that. Um, just like in the 2010s, it was understandable. And not only is it understandable, I understand because I also believed it deep down. And I realized only you know, from 2013 on that this belief – was held very deeply, but never actually really investigated. It was just something I've, I believed without thinking about it. Um, it's understandable why, given the real decimation of the structures that would make different types of contention possible, given the apparent ease at which you can throw together this one thing, which is the apparently spontaneous, uh, leaderless, horizontally structured, digitally coordinated mass protest, it's understandable to bet on that. That was what was available and it seemed an easier and really promising route. And I guess in both cases, um, the that understandable attempt, that understandable instinct runs up against the reality of reactionary power. People that are willing to crush you if you're going to take their, their um, uh, power away. This is something that was well understood in revolutionary history in this, you know, in the 20th century that a successful revolution uh, engenders a counter-revolution, especially if it challenges the rules of the larger global system. And um, this is exactly what what, what um, people find out in Libya um, mm-hmm. and Bahrain and to a different extent in Brazil and is different, I think, than the United States, which is why it matters that the internet is American, is that the U.S. by definition is not going to face imperialist intervention carried out by a, a, a larger power. That's impossible. Now, mm-hmm. you, one can imagine like the insurrection, like the, the the quote unquote revolution coming in the U.S. and then the U.S. Army deciding to crush it. Um, but there's never any like there's never other like larger power um, than the U.S. that can carry out this kind of counterattack. So yeah, that's an interesting corollary that in both cases it it's profoundly un understandable and i do understand and i think the book the book itself rather than just me starts from a place of deep deep sympathy for those instincts and then Mm -hmm. we just see we see what happens yeah yeah i really did appreciate those insights and you know i think that you know and i want to float this idea by you but it's like um part of neoliberalism, uh, which you even like say in the book is like, you know, it affects you both at the international level, the national level, and crucially the the individual level. And you said that, you know, in the individual level, it shapes you into being like an autonomous uh, individual who, uh, you know, success must be prioritized above all else, maximizing, optimizing, hustling, striving rather than being a part of any community. Right. And, um, I think that that could lead to people to, uh, you know, who are either new to organizing or especially like, you know, um, uh, a product of the post-Cold War period 
to not really refer to past struggles and reject those as, oh, that was the old way. There's like more new ones. But with yeah. that too, you mentioned how because there's no real frame of reference and like revolutionary history to go off of because that's like, you know, the bad way or the evil way, right? Um, right. That uh, some people will replace that with uh, pop culture and the internet, right? Which is like the right. Hunger Games, right? Like Hong Kong protesters right. were like, you know, using like pop culture, American pop culture symbols being like, oh, this is like we're in the Hunger Games instead, right? Uh, right. Instead of like, you know, maybe referencing, you know, um, like uh, the the CCP revolution, right? For instance, right? Or like, you know, looking at the Black Panthers or, um, you know, any revolutionary or in their history. Cases, you know, in their cases, you know, what what is possible when a important city state w- wants to contest the the decisions of a of a capital which is far away because you yeah. know because their because their situation was very different than the one in ukraine where it's happening right where the decision makers mm-hmm. are right it, like it was beijing was very very far away and capable of ignoring them if they wanted to yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly and i mean like the, the other other thing is like it opens the door like uh <laughs> me and brian have this um you know uh, we call him Mr. Uh, Zhao Fox, uh, and he's um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's the guy who uh, you know. Uh, with this, let's just like the last point on the um, Brazil is uh, it, with like Coney twenty twelve also had this uh, you know movement uh, in, on the internet of the Guy Fox mask uh, and yeah. the anonymous right and uh, yeah. you know talking in the distorted voice with the anonymous uh, Guy Fox mask on and like you know saying demands as if like this was like a demand for the people and um, you actually right. did brilliant work uh, tracking this guy down and this guy basically right. uh, you know posted a video um, and had five demands that basically was representing the protest movement. And these five demands um, ended up reverberating all the way up to the halls of power of Brazil, where they were taking it as like the official um, demands from the people. Right. And uh, you got to track him down. Uh, Can you like walk us through, I guess, what that was like and what you actually found? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as we described, like at the beginning of the conversation, once the mainstream media flips in Brazil in June 2013 and says, actually, this is a good thing. There's a vacuum of meaning. Like it's not clear what it is about if it's not about the original group's vision for Brazilian society. And so everybody tries to come up with different reasons. Like, oh, better public schools, better hospitals. And I think that's more coherent. Like that's kind of the narrative that I think is most true that Brazilians wanted to live. They didn't want to just put on the World Cup for the first world uh, uh, tourists. They wanted to live at the standards of the, the first world. But anyways... But everyone's like fighting to be like, what's this about? What's this about? What's this about? And in June, a, a, a video goes viral and it is from, quote unquote, anonymous. <laughs> and it is a guy, you know, he's got the whole setup. He's in an empty room with the mask on and he's got the distortion. And he's like, oh, yeah, we all need to unite. Put politics aside. And then it's like, well, well again, our, this is already makes, this is already wrong because he said put politics aside and then he's going to make five five claims upon the Brazilian state for, for its yeah. reconstruction. Yeah. Like, yeah, right. It's the most political thing. Okay. Put politics aside. And these are the five causes. And as like we all kind of noticed really quickly at the time, oh, none of these are about – none of these are about concrete yeah. material yeah. improvements for working class Brazilians. Like the whole thing was about better public services this is now all about like formal 
mm-hmm. um, even really esoteric reconstruction of like punitive processes at the at, at the national level, which is like, <laughs> like this is really common across like this is what you get across the 2010s is when you ask for a mix of formal political or cultural um, changes and you also ask for like redistribution and material. Uh, benefits the elites give you the first one they don't yeah. give you the yeah they don't yeah, give you they don't give you the thing that co- that means taking their money away they give you the cultural turn they give you the new slogan they give you they they change the rules for fighting corruption or whatever and so his five demands or his uh a cinco causas like you can still find the video mm-hmm. um it goes viral and then like again it's not the only thing that's in the street it's but it's like quickly in the streets um just like if we burn is quickly in the streets after one of the mm-hmm. interviewees in Hong Kong puts a gif at the end of his post on like Hong Kong Reddit. And so this becomes this shapes Brazilian history. And somehow this comes up and again and again, like in, in Gezi Park, there's five demands in Hong Kong. There's five dem- demands, not one less. This seems to be like where yeah. like the Internet hive mind lands <laughs> after an explosion. <laughs> And I, I did. I track them down six months later. I tracked down the 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 owner of the YouTube channel, um, and I'm like, oh, that's you know, this is really interesting. You you know, this these demands really took off. How did anonymous come up with them? He's like, what anonymous? <laughs> like, <laughs> anonymous is something that e- we are all we are legion. Or, you know that thing? Yeah, yeah. I am legion. We are one or something. Where we you know, we're all anonymous. I got the mask. I put the demands together. There's it's stuff that I got from Facebook and I just made it up. <laughs> and and what was remarkable about that story to me was not how insane it was, but that he didn't even think it was weird. He was like, Yeah, well, that's how anonymous right. works. Right. That's how that's how a, a a mass insurrection is supposed to decide what it's about. Is which video like has the cool like mm-hmm. gets your get get you know gets the people going you know like what, right. which video like no one knows what it means it gets the people going right like this was yeah. you know a dominant like like this ended up mattering for defining what what, what June twenty thirteen was all about and um, yeah I think this is something that we all thought a lot not everyone but a lot of people thought in twenty ten that oh well the existence of the internet and the end of the cold war means that we can throw out all of the lessons of organizing and revolutionary history and the reality of war and coups and and imperialism Mm -hmm. because the rules are changed, but it turns out things were a little bit different, but the rules weren't really changed. So that's why so many people that I spoke to started looking to the past rather than thinking we're going to create an entirely new theory, which is why like in my book, some people have come to the book thinking that it is this, the Mm -hmm. book doesn't do any like theoretical innovation. I'm not trying to come up with a new theory, like a new synthesis of the party and the internet or whatever. It's like, it's a history of the 2010s, and then it's the people saying what they think that they learned, and it often uh, often was more about looking into the past than trying to yeah. create something entirely new. Well, Vincent, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you know, it's uh, been fantastic getting to talk to you, and the book is amazing, everybody. There's so much in there that we haven't even talked about, so go read If We Burn. Uh, there'll be a link in the description. Thank you so much, Vincent. Yeah, yeah. Thank you yeah. so much to you, and thanks to, thanks for coming at it with like this these this different interpretation. That's like again, like I'm glad I like the initial attention on the book would like perhaps understandably, especially in the U.S. was like, oh, what are like the lessons? Like where where is the book positioning itself politically? Like what is he trying to say about like what I should do? But I mm-hmm. find that people find have a richer experience actually like encountering the story 
and then mm-hmm. like different things pop out to different people. And I'm finding that to be, uh, hopefully like it's what resonates across more space and time is the actual history. So yeah, I appreciate the, the way you guys came to it. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank so, you much. so much. Yeah. I mean, your, your <laughs> yeah. two books have had such a profound impact on me. So, you know, it's just really appreciate your work, Vincent. It's a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much to both of you. 